0: Hi and welcome to Wealthion. I'm James Connor and I'm so excited to be joining you on this channel as a guest host. I've been a massive fan of Wealthion for a while now and I'm honored to follow in Adam's footsteps and to have the opportunity to be part of Wealthion's mission, which is providing education and insights to you, our viewers, from leading experts in the world of finance to help you learn, build, and protect your personal wealth. A bit of background on myself. I have a passion for resources and educating people about the benefits of resources such as precious metals, battery metals, and uranium. Without these metals, we couldn't operate in the world we live in today. You and I wouldn't be able to communicate with one another on this channel. We wouldn't have smartphones and we wouldn't be able to trade stocks on an app. In the coming weeks, I'm looking forward to educating you on the benefits of resources with some of the leading experts in finance. And now, I would like to introduce you to our guest, David Iben. Dave is the Chief Investment Officer of Copernic Global Investors, which is an asset manager based in Tampa, Florida. Copernic's investment style is a bottom-up value approach, and they manage just over $6 billion in assets. David, thank you very much for joining us today. And before we discuss where you see value in these markets, I want to first get your view on the economy. Inflation is running very hot at 40-year highs. And even though the Fed says inflation is only 3 or 4%, we both know it's significantly higher than that. And as a result, it's causing a lot of pain throughout the economy. You and your team have done a lot of work on inflation. How do you think the Fed is doing? And do you think inflation is being subdued?
1: All right. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And as you suggest, it is interesting times in the market. You mentioned we are bottom up and we are 100 percent bottom up fundamental research. Uh we like it when our analysis says things are different than the markets seem to perceive. And as you mentioned, the markets don't seem to be paying a lot of attention to what's going on. It's more like they want to see. So as for the Fed, uh you know, maybe we're the wrong person to ask. We're in the we're in the Ron Paul camp of you know, get rid of the Fed. <laughs> we don't think that uh people, much less political types, should be in charge of the, uh, the stores of values of a nation's wealth. But as far as how they're doing, we all saw they took rates to zero and left them there for a, a decade. Uh, that's the problem. It was interesting how Ben Bernanke used to say he looked at the 1930s and they learned their lesson. We kept saying, you're looking the wrong decade, you should look for the 1920s. That sowed the seeds for the 30s. I think uh, what the Fed and all central banks did the last dozen years or so is indefensible, and it's maybe time to pay the price. Uh, We've talked a lot about how inflation is not transitory, it's more migratory. It migrates from one thing to another, works its way through the system, and that's sort of what we're seeing now. We're seeing, as you mentioned, prices going higher of lots of things. People uh, look at the CPI and maybe scratch their head. (laughs) But uh, even the CPI that is a government measure that's subjective, that only looks at consumer prices, leaves a lot of things out and is tortured, even that says inflation's gone up year over year, every year since 1954, I think it is. So it's not contained. And uh, what we're seeing... uh, yeah, even this last week, the market seems to like the numbers, but the numbers seem to say the prices are sticky, even with a slowing economy.
0: And Dave, we can't have a discussion on inflation without discussing the money supply. What are your views there?
1: Uh We believe, uh, as uh, Milton Friedman did, that money is man, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So, uh, you yeah, know, we look when I came in the business. 42 years ago, or people were obsessed with the money supply. If it grew at 4.5% and they wanted four, they would kill the markets. People couldn't have imagined a time period where 4 trillion would get printed out of thin air over several months time. So uh, yeah, we believe that there's so many extra variables that people shouldn't look at little small moves in the money supply like they did in the 80s but they should really pay attention to big moves in the money supply. So a doubling of the money supply in the last four years and a tenfold increase since 2008, those are things that people should pay attention to. Uh, That's something that needs to be dealt with.
0: So you bring up an interesting point there that the money supply has doubled in the last four years. That would imply real assets would also double. I don't think mine have. But another way of looking at that is that the purchasing power of your currency has been cut in half. Would that be a correct assumption?
1: Yeah, that's the way we see it. Cut in half in four years. And people can say, but didn't they just take a trillion dollars out of the system? Yes, they did. It's a doubling even after that. The money supply went from $4 trillion to $9 trillion, back to $8 trillion. So it's still a doubling and uh you know friedman and a lot of others say as you do that maybe a doubling of the money supply is a hundred percent increase in the the price of things we've been talking to people a lot about a guy named richard Cantillon from uh three centuries ago but he's a fascinating guy uh, you know people should read about him he was uh i think partners with john law who uh kind of launched the whole Mississippi scheme during the bubble in France at the time, which was the same time as the South Sea bubble, and he was able to make a a lot of money off it. But his uh, saying was, sure, money's inflationary, but money is non-neutral. So uh, when you print money, it, it doesn't affect all things equally. As he put it, if you have a river and you double the water in the river, but you do it all up the source of the river, uh, people downstream don't know. Yeah, They will know in a day or a week or a month, depending upon how long it takes to get down there. So it it, it the money supply leads to price increases, some things sooner, some things later, some things not at all. Uh, if one bank of the river is high, it doesn't flush there. If one bank's low, it floods. All the prices go up there. And so if you look at that, that's usually how it plays out. You look at the 1920s and the 1990s, and, well, the 1960s and 70s for sure. You print money and what goes up, you know, usually they print the money to buy bonds. The bond market goes up and then money leaves the bond market into stocks and real estate and art and other things and so those prices go up none of those are captured accurately in the cpi so people say there's been no inflation but of course there has it's just gone into uh, those sort of assets after a few years of housing prices going up a lot people say we can make money building houses. So they start building houses that drives the price of lumber up and copper up and concrete up. And when those are going up and there's more jobs, then you have to pay more for the electrician and more for the carpenter. So their wages going up and as they get rich, they go to the restaurants more often. And those prices go up, it kind of migrates to the system. And so to your point, uh, the money supply has doubled, it's up tenfold since 2008, and, 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 eight. and uh, you know, I, I put some uh, figures, okay, so the money supply up 10 times. So, Cantillon's point, things should go up 10, points, 10 times, but uh, what's happened since then is the NASDAQ has gone up 10 times, 11 times. The NASDAQ 100, that's gone up 14 times. <laughs> Whereas the S and P's only gone up seven times, and the MSCI is only up four and a half times. Gold has only doubled. Other commodities is reflected by the Bloomberg commodity index, not up. Uh, Why gold's gone up two times? The GDX has not gone up, and the GDXJ has gone in half. And we can go over other examples. I won't for right now on, on other commodities but uh, the prices go in unevenly. And the fact that, say, your assets or my assets haven't gone up tenfold yet is disappointing, but it's actually kind of exciting because as things migrate through the system, you know, in the uh, 60s, they migrated out of stocks and bonds into commodities for the next 10 years. That, that was the place to be in the 70s. Same thing following the 99 bubble, the place to be was in commodities. So I think you can make up a, a great case that it's it's that they haven't gone up yet.
0: And you brought up gold a couple of times, and I do want to go there. But before we do that, I have to ask you about interest rates, because this is in response to this high inflation. The Fed has lifted rates I believe 11 times, I lost track, but they've done so at a very accelerated pace. And this is causing, a, once again, a lot of pain throughout the economy with businesses and with individuals. And because the Fed has lifted rates at such a fast pace, do you think that there could be some other event that might be unfolding in the not too distant future?
1: Well, that'll be interesting, because it's true they've come up faster and further than what we've seen in, in history. So obviously there will be consequences to that on the other hand uh 10 years of zero interest rate you know that's unprecedented so uh, when i come into the business we couldn't have imagined rates as low as five percent <laughs> and so now they run all the way up to five percent is five percent higher isn't it high uh smarter men than, than me can uh make that decision. But uh, certainly there'll be consequences. The, uh, the type of assets that did well during the 40 years of falling interest rates are highly unlikely to be the same assets that will do well when rates are going up. And so we suggest that people look at the 1970s or they look at other countries that have had inflation problems and see what did well there. And in the 1970s, you did not do well if you owned stocks or bonds, unless you own the stocks of Schlumberger, an oil service company, or Exxon, or Homestake Mining, those sort of things. Uh, so, uh, quite likely, these rising interest rates will, uh, will hurt some of the winners of the last 40 years. We've seen what it can do to uh, Silicon Valley Bank and places like that. I don't think people should be that surprised if there's not other entities out there that got got too long on duration or, and we'll see if there's credit implications. Certainly you see the, the numbers on credit card delinquencies and autos and other things are in some cases worse than in 2008, nine. So the consequences are starting to be seen, but they are certainly not being seen by the stock market. Uh we, sh- we shall see, but I would guess that companies with lots of leverage and or sell into leverage markets will feel increasing pain. As far as gold and commodities, people tend to think that rising interest rates uh, are not a problem for the NASDAQ in their opinion, but uh, is a problem for gold. Uh, we think that's a yeah, mis- uh, misunderstanding. In the uh, 1970s, interest rates rate for a couple percent to 20 percent. So, gold should have got killed if, if rising rates were bad for gold. Gold did not get killed, it went from $35 to 800 Then, rates went from 20 back to three or four. So, did gold go to the moon? No, gold fell from to 2,000 or I mean from from 800 yeah so gold went from 35 to 800 uh, then uh, gold fell from 800 back to 255 so uh, uh, clearly that's been wrong since then uh, rail rates going up and gold's done pretty well so what matters is real interest rates, not nominal interest rates. So in the 1970s, rates were going up, but continuing to lag inflation on the way. Uh, The last three years, that's been the case too. It's rates have gone up, but tended to lag inflation. Now inflation may or may not be cooling. And if it is, it may or may not be temporary, but uh, it's not clear at all that rising rates Nominal rates are are bad for gold. It's probably quite the opposite.
0: It seems like it was just yesterday when they said, or the Fed said, that inflation was transitory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I guess they had to say something. Uh, Now, some people are starting to say that slowdown in CPI is showing that it was transitory, but uh, they should worry because when uh, commodities took off to the moon a few years ago, they said that's the reason that. uh, yeah, the the CPI is up. Then commodities, in many cases, fell 70%. It was a big drop in a lot of commodities. Uh, so then I guess the CPI should have dropped 6 or 7%, but it didn't. It stayed positive all the way through and generally more positive than their 2% they wanted. So uh, uh, it's not playing out the way they would have hoped, I think. <laughs>
0: So, Dave, you've touched on gold a couple of times. You and your team are very bullish on gold now. Explain what the thesis is.
1: Yeah. With us, the thesis is always, as bottom-up investors, what's something worth and where does the market have a different opinion than, than we do? You now, People will say, we must be thematic uh, macro. We say, no, we're 100% bottom-up. The market is thematic. and macro. The market is tens of millions of people. Uh, famously, we don't all think as well as part of a crowd as we do on our own. Uh, you see that all the time in football games, rock concerts, uh, politics, you see the crowds get crazy sometimes. And so, uh, uh, if the crowd decides they like something a lot, uh, usually that means it's out of our price range. And so we don't end up buying it. What gets us excited is where. People get too negative on things. Uh, what gets better than three years ago when the price of oil got negative. <laughs> there was a day where it was minus $40 or something, and that was trading at really obscenely low rates for a long time. Uh, so intelligent people could say whether the fair price is you know 40 or 60 or 80 or 100 people can have that discussion but zero or 20 dollars was never a consideration and the idea that we were going to be off hydrocarbons in three years you know, in other words by now was crazy and so as bottom-up investors we can say all right let's buy companies well we'll we'll make some pretty good money if oil's at 50 we'll make a lot of money if it's at 70 and, and that worked out pretty well and as people thought we were in a you know, depression and hence oil down, that meant copper was cheap and it meant gas was cheap, it meant uranium was cheap. And so we were able to take advantage of all that and it worked out. Now the world's come around so they like oil and gas, kind of, they're, they like uranium a lot more than they used to. And they're still arguably all too low in price. But uh, over the last, three years, the price of gold's done nothing and the price of gold stocks for the most part have gone down. So, you know, we like uranium gas oil, others are kind of liking it. We like gold on the fundamentals and the market does not like gold at all. And so uh, that's where we're coming from. We're saying, well, uh, at $2,000 or less, nobody is building a major gold mine so if the miners are depleting their mines at you know a million a quarter and not replacing that gold ultimately that has to lead to to higher prices whether that's 200 or 300 or 400 dollars above where we are now uh, who knows but it certainly takes higher prices so we like that but then the bears will come to us and say fine if we don't produce enough oil oil gets consumed in the gas tank and whatnot, will run out. So we understand why oil needs to come up to its equilibrium price, but gold, who cares? We don't put it in the gas tank. We don't eat it. We don't use it industrially. We say, all right, we kind of agree with that. Gold does not sound like a commodity. It sounds like money. And we don't eat dollar bills and we don't put euros in the gas tank and we don't put yen into the industrial process. And so, uh, maybe we should look at, you know, supply and demand of dollars versus supply and demand of gold. Uh, that's gone up from 400 an ounce when I came in the business to, you know, 40,000 an ounce or something like that now. So uh, we're not saying that's going to happen. We're just saying, maybe gold's worth where it is today. Maybe it needs to go to 300 higher to uh, reach an equilibrium, or maybe it needs to go a few thousand higher to adjust uh, for the, you know, the idea that it needs to come back in line with the, the money supply over time. So that's one thing. And then the most exciting thing though, and this applies for uranium, natural gas, gold, you name it, the commodities might be undervalued, But on Wall Street, they're more undervalued. And so that's an opportunity. But even more exciting, the things that people should value most. If something is needed and desired and hard to find, then you don't want to have to go find it. You want to already own it. So the most valuable resource companies are the ones with the big resources. But everybody on Wall Street does a DCF model and they do the DCF model upside down. They do not say like all DCF models, that the price of the dollar or the euro is gonna fall 5% a year against goods and services. They say, if you pull gold or copper uranium out of the ground next year, it's the commodity that's down 5% against dollars. And after five years, it's down by 0.95 to the fifth power. That's after 10 years, uh, 0.95 to the 10th power. The commodities are dropping against dollars. That's backwards. So that means we are able to buy big, big reserves of your uranium and gas and especially gold right now at really crazy low prices because of people's what we think is misanalysis of long life reserves.
0: So there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to play devil's advocate now, Dave. All Bitcoin right. is up. 100% on the year. The gold is up small in the year, somewhere between 5 to 10%. And my question to you is, is Bitcoin the new gold?
1: Yeah, that's a question that comes up quite a bit. I know a lot of my friends that used to be uh, proponents of gold now now love Bitcoin. There is a lot of similarities between the two that, you know, with both of them, you've got relatively fixed supply and you don't have to uh, trust government politicians as to whether to buy it. However, if people have on average 1% of their money in cryptocurrencies and on average 1% of their money in precious metals and they have 90-something percent of their money in dollar-based assets and they're printing money like there's you no know, tomorrow over time, then I would say the real question is the battle between fiat currencies and real assets, stores of value. And so, yeah, as we saw in the 1970s, as we've seen in Argentina, Venezuela, you name it, we see that when people start to lose faith in this money, it goes into all kinds of real assets. So people can talk about whether they should like real estate more, or commodities more, or Bitcoin more, or gold more, or, or Google or Apple more. These are all stores of value. We would suggest that Google and Apple are, you know, deserving to be viewed as a store of value, but everybody knows them, everybody likes them, everybody owns them. They're not likely to be undervalued. Uh, whereas commodities have not run up and they've got a lot of history as being stores of value. So they're probably a nice place to be over the long run. Bitcoin, uh, like I say, whether it takes a little market share away from gold or lose a little market share to gold or whether it all goes to copper and into neither of those, I, I don't know. But if massive trillions of dollars start exiting uh, bank accounts or bond accounts and, and going into stores of value, I don't see why gold and Bitcoin can't both be winners, as well as agriculture and commodities and and Google, you name it, they can all win. And so we don't think the battle's between the two of them. They're both stores of value. The difference though is for both good and bad, gold is boring. Yeah, it is what it is and uh, it'll be a store of value. It's been a store of value for thousands of years It'll keep its value, but it's not going to be the the thing that creates tons of value. It'll just store value. Uh, Bitcoin that might be the thing that goes up a thousand times, or it might go to zero. So there's a little more risk to that. Uh, With gold, you don't have to worry about solar flares knocking out uh, memory or or electrical grids, or you don't have to worry about what happens if electricity shut off. You don't have to worry about losing your wallet or uh, somebody hacking into the system you don't have to worry about this algorithm that's promised us that it's going to keep bitcoin scarce uh not being any better than the promises of central bankers who promised us for years they wouldn't print currency so uh, to us bitcoin is a uh, yeah interesting speculation we uh you know, kind of like it but uh but to put a meaningful part of people's wealth into it, why not gold? Gold, uh, it's nobody's liability and it can't be printed under any circumstances and it's a known quantity. So that's that's our opinion on that.
0: You touched on uranium a couple of times and you and your team are also big investors in uranium and it's done very well this year. I believe it's up 50 plus percent, but what's your thesis there? Why do you have such a interest in uranium.
1: Yeah, what's interesting, we talk about the the crowds being fickle. So uh, in the 1960s, people were pretty excited about uranium. And by the time I came into the business in the 80s, people were starting to get tired of the uh, cost overruns. You build a plant for a billion, end up spending 6 billion and uranium started to become less popular. And then you have, some events like uh 3 Mile Island or Chernobyl and <clears throat> people decided they didn't like it anymore. But the price uh went from uh 1.137 down to 18. <laughs> and uh in the midst of that was the uh Fukushima event. Uh at 137 people were focused on this is cheap and it's clean and it's carbon free and uh safety wise it's actually been safer safer than any other form of electricity and then after fukushima they came out with uh you know, things can happen and it's kind of scary sometimes and you know, how do you deal with these things and you know that's correct also uh, so 137 that was too high people were too bullish 18 that was too low people were too bearish now people are slowly coming back to uh you yeah, it is safer than most others and we do on a carbon-free environment and how can you do that without nuclear as base load and so as they're coming back the price of uranium is coming back to a, a fairer price now what is fair uh, we like the charlie munger approach of things let's throw out what's wrong. So uh, if you don't know exactly what's right, in 2007, 137 up from 10 was too high. Uh, But 18 was too low. At 18, people were closing mines. They were not building mines. (laughs) We like to watch what people are doing. Uh, We, even when it was 18, we kept saying somewhere between 90 and 60, 60 and 90 uh, that's a range that's that's defensible. Uh, since then, they've doubled the money supply. So we're saying, yeah, 60 to 90, that's one scenario. The uh, money migrates to the system and it's worth 100-something is a highly likely scenario. So uh, we think uh, if we buy most uranium stocks now, they're a tad undervalued with this, optionality that it's probably worth more. So we kind of like uranium. We loved uranium when it was bouncing around between 18 and 32, that was a, a real gift. That's where we think maybe the gold stocks are now.
0: Interesting. And Dave, because you're a value investor, I have to ask you about lithium, which is one of the primary components that goes into EV batteries. It was up 140% in 2022, and now in 2023, it's down 60%, give or take. And is that a sector you're looking at because it's been so beaten up?
1: Uh, We're absolutely looking at it. We uh, had a group of us went down to a global lithium conference down in uh, Salta, Argentina last summer, went up into the... uh, into the Andes and visited some mines. We've uh, met with a lot of companies. It, it's interesting that the bulls and bears all have some interesting cases. <laughs> so, uh, you know whether we're ready to buy yet, I'm not sure. But it's getting more interesting. Uh, it does seem to be that it's a little more complicated than some other things. You know, maybe it's more like bauxite, where the value to turn it into aluminum, aluminum is more important than having the bauxite. And uh, so it seems like the companies that own the real high quality reserves from way back and have the licensing and have the ability to do the chemistry and everything that's involved in taking that lithium into something that people can use for batteries might be more valuable than just having the lithium itself. You know, lithium, they're finding it everywhere. So like, uh, you know, like bauxite, like uh, iron, maybe it's having high quality reserves and having the ability to do something with it. So uh, these stocks are down big in the last year, up big on the last five years. <laughs> if earnings can even half stay where they are now, these are pretty interesting stocks. So we are looking, have not yet bucked.
0: David, when we talk about all these different mining stocks and, and minerals, I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is it can be very profitable, but it can also be very risky. And that's mostly in part due to geopolitics. And we saw that recently with First Majestic, which owns a mine in Panama. And they just negotiated a new mining agreement. And for whatever reason, the government has re, uh rescinded that agreement, and the stock lost, I believe, 50% of its market cap, which is somewhere around 8 to $10 billion. So it was quite significant. But I'm curious how you and your team manage jurisdictional risk.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. With mining, there is the geopolitical risk. There's also risks with geology and chemistry and, and management mistakes, uh, currencies, you name it. So... Uh, A lot of people that even like copper and gold and whatnot will not buy the miners, which to us is music to our ears. If if a lot of people won't touch something at any price, there's a price for everything. But, you know, way back in school, you know, we learned a different view than now. Now people view that the markets are not risky, but we learned that market risk was risky. Business risk was less risky because you can diversify it out. And so If one is inclined to invest in miners uh, because the businesses can be risky, we think the proper thing to do is analyze them, understand them the best you can figure out what they're worth and buy them at a huge discount. And we tend to buy these things at 50 to 90% cheaper than we think they're worth uh, and not exaggerating. And, uh, And then if you do that, you can uh, diversify across. And so if uh, you have a portfolio of 20 stocks and some of them go up in price three, four, five, ten times, which these things do during the good times, uh, then you can be wrong on a few of them. Uh, You look at different examples i remember back in 2009 we had a portfolio of a lot of reserves around the world that were trading in our view 10 cents on the dollar uh the mine in venezuela was stolen from us uh management team screwed up elsewhere in south america so those were two things that didn't work out for us we had a career year because we made seven times our money in papua new guinea and ten times our money in mongolia four times in the drc again in 2016 we had a uh, a hydrocarbons company that we feel was stolen from us you know sour grapes but the important thing was that with that position as a loss we still had a tremendous six months because there again, we had a lot of stocks go up three, four or five times in a, in a very short time period because you're able to buy them very cheaply. Uh, if you were talking to people a few years ago and say, where are the safe places to be? It'd be like, definitely Chile, uh, you know, definitely the United States, uh, Panama, which is you know very US influenced. and And now all of a sudden, chile has people worried and you mentioned panama uh we have a big property it's the largest undeveloped copper uh development in the world and it's in the u.s and uh the uh government and others are doing their best to try to make sure it is not built so it's sort of the opposite of what they want a lot of money companies view the the us is more dangerous meanwhile Uh, One of our best performing stocks in recent years was in the DRC in the Congo where, uh, you know, Ivanhoe has built a tremendous mine and uh, the government's been pretty good to work with. We've had a lot of success in other parts of the world that people might give second thoughts to. And so the idea is that you never know, you know, what things are gonna look like a year or two from now. So buy things inexpensively, diversify. Always important, but especially with resources.
0: Dave, I want to move on now and get your views on the broader indices, the S&P and the NASDAQ. And despite everything that's going on in the world with Ukraine, the Middle East, both the S&P and NASDAQ are performing very well. Does this surprise you? And how do you see the S&P as being valued? Is it fairly valued or overvalued?
1: If you, you know go back to the whole Cantillon effect that we were talking about when they print a lot of money It tends to go into the financial markets and when financial markets are doing well for a long period of time everybody jumps in lots of unsophisticated people and then The analysis becomes fairly binary People say this is good. This is bad and so if something's good, they think that there's no price that's too high. And when something's bad, they think there's no price that's too low. And usually they're not half as bad as people think they are. In 1929, people were absolutely right if they thought the U.S. was really a really great place to be, that had a, you know, a century in front of them that was going to be great, and that radio was going to be a wonderful thing, and cars and all these other things. They would have been dead right. Uh, well, they would have lost 90% of their money in the next three years. And with RCA, if you got the winner, you would have broke even in the 1950s. Uh, that happens when you pay too much money, and that's what people do. They printed too much money in the 90s. They printed too much money in the 60s, and that created the go-go stocks and the nifty-fifty. The nifty-fifty were great companies. Turns out they were right. These are companies that for the next 50 years have done well, Coke and Procter and Gamble and Gillette and Johnson and Johnson. uh, People lost half their money in the next couple of years. They lost 70, 80 on some of these things. 10 years later, when I came in the business, even though earnings had gone up for 10 years in a row, the stocks had plunged. You could buy these things for for a bargain. So they paid uh, too much in 19, 99 people were right that Microsoft and Cisco and all these companies would probably do pretty well. They just, the NASDAQ went down 80% the, the next few years. That was the time to buy. Uh, so a couple of points. One, now we're back into 10 years of massive money printing, 15 years of massive money printing. The markets basically have been going straight up People are back to their binary thoughts and they're saying, Magnificent seven, no price is too high for that magnificent seven. I uh, suspect people will find that what at the peak NVIDIA was forty-two times revenues. <laughs> yeah, it reminds us of that Scott McNally thing, uh McNally from after Sun Microsystems got hit and he's like you know when you're talking to me what were you guys thinking paying 10 times revenues for my stock but if you uh if i paid you 100 percent of revenues every year for 10 years you'd only get your money back not make a nickel and by the way i'd have no workforce no technology no plants no anything that's 10 times earnings 42 times earnings is, is a fascinating thing so do i think that the s p which is dominated by these darlings is overpriced absolutely on almost any metric on price to sales price to gdp uh price to the you know book value price to, to pretty much anything it's very expensive fortunately uh you know back in uh 72 if instead of buying the nifty 50 or the general s p somebody bought japan they did well if they bought oil they did well agriculture well gold well same thing in 1999 yeah we were fortunate to make pretty good money every year while that market was falling because the money rolled into uh, commodities and whatnot so now uh you got all these trends that are all very much in favor of, of managers i believe active managers you have the index is really overpriced compared to other stocks so that's interesting growth is very overvalued compared to to value Uh, that we think is pretty interesting the u.s it's a great country but uh for 60 some odd percent of the entire index to be in one country is is a fascinating thing so uh that's very overvalued versus everything else in the world the u.s is I guess now considered to be worth 50% more than every other country in the world put together. So and now is a good time to buy international. And then you might've seen these charts going back know, 150 years showing uh, real assets divided by financial assets. And it's <coughs> it's pretty much as good as it's been in a century and a half. So uh, you know, if the S P does prove to be as expensive as it looks like, we'll probably see that money migrate out of the S&P into uh, things. You saw it start to do that a year ago. Uh, we'll see whether that was the head fake or whether this little reverse trend is the head fake, but certainly the fundamental support that financial assets are rather expensive and real assets are very cheap under most any measure.
0: Dave, you mentioned that The U.S. is extremely overvalued. So if you don't allocate money toward the U.S., then where would you suggest allocating money? What countries do you like?
1: Yeah. And we'll point out that we do bottom-up analysis. So we don't have a crystal ball that says which country to go. And it turns out with natural gas, we do have a couple in the U.S. So uh, it depends. But the U.S. has very little exposure because most industries, we can find better values elsewhere. If one likes natural resources that we mentioned canada lots of value in canada companies are there that happen to own properties all around the world so that's interesting uh, korea is fascinating uh, yeah, korea might be where japan was five years ago nobody liked japan now they're starting to like it again the japanese market has had a nice run but uh with uh korea industry by industry uh, you know, auto companies cheaper there than elsewhere, uh, tire companies cheaper. there. conglomerates are way cheaper there. Uh, we've made a habit of, uh, comparing Korea telecom to Verizon and at and uh, thus far, instead of KT, uh, doubling Verizon and at and AT&T fell in half, but ultimately those value divergencies come together. Uh, if you get, Korea Telecom, you're getting a Triopolis with uh, great technology that's trading a 6% dividend and a fraction of book value trading for um, $400 or $500 per customer versus five, six times that for AT&T and Verizon. So uh, across the board, uh, we, we do not own Samsung now, but it's i think at what 40 percent of the cost of apple even though they have bigger market share in ways and so <clears throat> big valuation there uh japan less so than it used to be but there's still lots of pockets of value there so we uh, still see things there and uh you know southeast asia is starting to get very cheap some things in latin america are getting pretty cheap uh pockets of europe so uh People should just look industry by industry and say, where are the good companies? If it's in another country, uh, we're not saying if you can get you know, 18 times earnings in the U.S. or 16 times earnings somewhere else, you should take the 16. Uh, we're saying if you get 18 times earnings in the U.S. and 8 times earnings in another country, that's pretty good. That should be pretty interesting, and that's the sort of divergency we're seeing.
0: Dave, as we wrap up, you've lived through many cycles. Does this current environment remind you more of the 1970s or the early 2000s?
1: I think uh, much more of the 1970s. (laughs) I think uh, the the 2000s was, you know, it was uh, tech, you know, it was more tech oriented. I think the 1970s was a time period very much like now where you had lack of fiscal discipline. Yeah, governments were spending a lot more in the US. We called it guns and butter. We were going to finance the Vietnam War while doing massive social programs. And whether that was good or bad, but it was something we couldn't afford. That led to a lot of money printing. It was also a time period where there's lots of geopolitical skirmishes going on around the world. Uh, so. And you had more heavy-handed governments. People believed that that was a a good thing. Uh, Whether it is or it isn't, history and logic will show that big governments and deficits and wars and all these things are inflationary. And uh, certainly all those sowed the seeds for a decade of inflation in the 70s where that was not the case following the uh, 90s, which was more of, too much money going into some popular stocks that, for the most part, did not have debt. And uh, that crashed and we moved on.
0: (laughs) Well, Dave, that was a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. If you are trying to figure out how to invest in your future, consider a consultation with a financial advisor that Wiltheon endorses at com. You can fill out a short form there. It only takes a few seconds and there's no commitment to work with any of these advisors. It's just a free public service that they look to help as many people as possible. If you've enjoyed this discussion today with David and myself, please hit that subscribe button and give us a like. And if you have an interest in learning more about resources and how they can benefit your portfolio, visit our channel, Capital. Thank you very much for being with us today and I look forward to seeing you again soon.